0: Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 5 of Revelation, where we begin to close the chapter looking further into the worship in heaven. So if you're able, grab your
1: Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. But I don't know about you. I have not been too anxious to get out of this chapter, as you can figure out. And it's not just because I'm just delaying as I'm working my way through it. But it's just such a powerful chapter. And when you think about it and and you begin, and I hope you are reading ahead in the book of Revelation. I don't care how many times you've read it before, but to be reading ahead. And you know that in chapter six, things are going to become pretty ominous. You know, we're going to see some things beginning to happen as God finishes his work of redemption on this earth through the judgment that he tells us in the rest of the book of Revelation revelation that he'll be bringing to fallen mankind uh, to those who really have rejected him and but we know the end of the of, of the story we know the end what's coming we know that there will be a, a rule of Christ on this earth once again when that's complete. We know that there's coming a new day uh, when heaven and earth you know this heaven and earth as we now know it will dissolve and a new heaven and earth will be established, and righteousness will reign forever. but in the meantime there's still something coming in between, but before we get to it this chapter has been so powerful because it just proclaims who God is to us. And, and we're going to finish it up this morning. We we left off in verse nine last time with this new song that they're singing. And you might remember, let's read that together again. It says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. John now begins to write what he's seeing in that heavenly throne room. And it's a powerful moment of worship that's taking place. And we're told that these men and these angels, they begin to sing this new song. They're singing out the the proclamation of the one who reached out and took the the scroll, which no other human being could take and break open. Remember, it's the title deed. The title deed to our very souls, to our very lives, that only Christ could break the seals of because he alone has paid the debt of that title deed that was sold away by us, by human beings in their sin, was given away. It wasn't their right to give it away, but they gave it away anyways. We have given it away in our pre Christ state, we gave it away and only Christ could pay the cost to get it back. No man could do it. That's why we found John weeping because he realized the reality that no man could do this, but only Christ could. And Christ has stepped forward and he's broken those seals and, and, and all of heaven is breaking loose in praise and worship. I love praise and worship. This chapter is about praise and worship. I was at the East Coast Pastors Conference with some of our guys this week, and I'll tell you what, it was the fullest it's ever been. There were over 1,200 guys present. And when they were singing, you know, You want to get a sense of it. If you're on Facebook, go access my page and scroll back a few days and you'll find some of the postings because I got to tell you, and I even hate taking video of it because I just want to be just in the midst of it singing too, but there's nothing like it. And I thought to myself, as I'm surrounded by these these men faces, I don't even know all of them and and I'm listening to them, worshiping the Lord so sweetly and so powerfully. I, I can't help but think of this chapter that we're in. And to realize that one day, and and I told you this before, but I think this chapter is really a, a, a future snapshot that has us in the picture. We just don't realize it yet, but we're in the throngs being described here. You and me, we're in this. We're looking at our future right here in this chapter. But I couldn't help but be surrounded by all these guys and they're just singing. Their hands are raised up and the shouts and the praise is just going up. And I'm thinking to myself, it's nothing compared to what we're going to see in that day and experience in that day that we're going to give to our Lord in that day. He's amazing. It's the only thing he wants from us. He hasn't asked for all kinds of stuff. He hasn't asked us to do all kinds of penance. He hasn't asked us to, to, to fix things as we think it ought to be fixed. He's asked us to bring nothing to him but our, our faith and our worship of him. He wants us by faith to believe in his finished work so that we can come then before God's throne and worship as we were created to do. We were created to worship the Lord. I think back to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, when, when Moses is going before Pharaoh, Repeatedly, He keeps saying, let my people go. And and, and what he says is, let my people go that they might come and worship me. You see, that is a beautiful picture of what God was going to do through redemption just in the practical illustration of his people. He was trying to set them free of their bondage so that they would come and worship him. That's why we've been set free to worship the Lord. And our worship of the Lord isn't just our singing. We've talked about that before, right? It's not just our singing. Singing is great. I love doing that. But you know what good is, what good are the words that we sing if our lives are a mess, if we haven't yielded ourselves fully to him for the process of sanctification that he's bringing to our lives? You know, what good does it do for us to worship the Lord and sing songs to him on a Sunday morning and then walk out the door and go back to worshiping ourselves the rest of the week? That's nothing more than than hypocritical behavior. It's not what God desires. He desires our worship. And that worship is a total surrender to him to get to that place where there's nothing but him. That song we sang this morning, Ancient of Days, I shared it with everybody on Wednesday night that was here. We, we played it and sang to it. And um, before this morning's over, we're going to sing it again. But I challenge you to listen to the words of, of that song and think about it. The Ancient of Days, the one who has always been, has rescued you and me. He set us free. And he's just saying, man, I just want you. I just want you. Now think about that. What a privilege. You know, I understand when Jesus says, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commands and my commands are not burdensome. You know why they're not burdensome? Because we realize what he's done for us. We realize all that he's done for us. And it's like, Lord, we just want to worship you through everything, our lives. We just want to lay it down at your altar, at your throne so that you can be honored. So this is a powerful moment in the throne room of God at this moment as these, these, these worshipers in heaven begin to worship, angelic beings, human beings, us standing there just worshiping the Lord in that day. But it goes on and, and, and we begin to see what that new song is. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign On the earth. You're worthy. You're worthy. You know, David Guzik tells us that the Roman emperors were celebrated with this arrival of a Latin expression, vere dignus, which is translated, you're worthy. It's translated, you're worthy. And here's the same proclamation being made in regard to Jesus, the true ruler of the world. He's now being honored as, as he steps forward to assume his rightful position as king and potentate uh, of not just the world, but of all creation. You're worthy. You're worthy. We already proclaim this of Jesus in our worship of him because we believe him to be sitting on the throne today. And we affirm the fact that he's ruling, but not in the sense as these folks see him ruling. In that day, as we will truly see him in that day ruling, the proclamation they're making is of a Jesus who has come to take possession of the physical throne of the world. It's it's about Jesus coming to do what the Jews expected him to do the first time around, but he didn't. And because of that, they were disillusioned by who he was, even his disciples. His disciples believed that he was going to march up that hill into Jerusalem not to be crucified on a cross, but to go and, and, and take away the authority of the Roman government, to seat himself back in the rightful throne of the line of David. This is what they're still waiting for even today. If you talk to devout Jews, they will tell you they're waiting for their Messiah to come to fulfill this role, to be David. And yet that's not what he came for the first time. We all know that. He didn't come to do that. He came to do what was more important, and that was to take this throne first. Because what good is a kingdom full of people whose hearts are not in submission to him first? He came to take our hearts so that when he comes to take the physical throne, the hearts are already there towards him and will worship him and follow him and submit to his rule and authority in a way that we would not otherwise do. You see? But these saints, as they're worshiping, this is what's behind their worship. They see this happening. They see Jesus taking the scroll and breaking it open. And they know what's about to happen. They know what's coming. Yeah, they know there's going to be judgment poured out. But at the same time, they know that at the end of that judgment, Jesus is going to physically step his foot back onto this earth and take control once again. And they're praising him for it. But this is a role that Jesus always intended to fulfill. Men just weren't patient enough to wait for him to do it, you see. Don't be too quick, just in your personal lives, and I say this to you, don't be too quick to give up on Jesus because he does not immediately fulfill some expectation that you have of him. Something you think he should do for you. Maybe you've read scriptures about the things you've read scriptures where it talks about that. He'll heal you. And and maybe you're struggling this morning with some physical infirmity. Maybe you're struggling with all kinds of screws in your leg. Maybe you're struggling with all kinds of things and you know, these scriptures and it's like, well, well, he hasn't come. He hasn't done this for me. And you start to lose heart. Be patient. Remember the Jews made that mistake. Don't you make the same mistake? Be patient. Be patient. He may do it in your time frame and he may not, but he will one day do it. He will make it complete. You see, we look at this world and, and we know the promises that one day righteousness will rule and we want to get ahead of things and we want to bring about some righteousness in our world. But because we don't necessarily see Jesus doing it, and then we try and it just doesn't work out. My answer is be patient. Don't give up. He's working and we'll take time. There's a process. There's things that must be accomplished first. You see, Jesus will be to you all that he promised to be. He'll be everything to you that he promised to be, but he'll be those things in his timing and in his way, not yours. You just trust him. Put your faith in him. Patiently wait on him, and he will be everything in the end that you ever expected him to be and so much more. (laughs) So much more. I love those verses where Paul writes exceedingly abundantly. You know, there was an old preacher in Calvary Chapel that when he'd do that, he always wore suspenders. His name was Gail Irwin. He'd always stick his, he's still alive. He would stick his fingers under his, under his suspenders ego, and the Lord's going to do exceedingly abundantly, you know. <laughs> and I used to think to myself, yeah, he's going to do more than we can ever think. Imagine and complete things in a way. That will be more right than it would be if he just met our expectations right now. Be patient. But here in chapter 5, the moment that his people have longed for has finally arrived. Jesus is about to step forward and to begin the process of taking his rightful place in a physical sense. And as he does, he's being honored with the praise of those who've gathered around the throne for what he's about to do. And they're worshiping him for it. And he says, you know for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. This entire song has as his focus, the work of redemption. You know, we, we sing praises to the Lord about a lot of things today in Christianity. I hope you find here as we do our songs, we really do try to focus them on the Lord and what he's done. I mean, there's some great ditties that we like to sing from time to time. They're just fun to sing, you know, in praise of him. But, but, but at the heart of what we're really praising the Lord for, I really think it needs to be out the redemptive work that he's done for us, focusing us back on him and what he has done, not us. Some songs today that we sing are so much more about us than they are about him and what he's done. And, and I think it's important that we get it back there because that's what this one is about. But, but unlike... anything we'll ever sing, even if we do sing some about the redemptive work, it will not match this one. This is a, if if you will, it is a perfect song. It is a perfect song. There was a a commentator I read a long time ago, but he said this song really honors seven aspects of Christ's work of redemption. And actually, I just say that so you know these are not original thoughts on my part, but I want to share them with you because I think they're powerful. I really do. Here are the seven aspects he says are in the song. The song, number one, honors the price of redemption. It honors the price of redemption. What does he say there? For you were slain. You were slain. Death has always been the price of redemption. Death has always been the price of redemption. It's, it's the cost associated with our sin. Now, up to this point, the payment of death was affected through some substitutionary animal sacrifice, right? That's how it was taken care of under the old covenant. But, but these sacrifices that took place under the old covenant of a lamb or a ram, they were imperfect and they were incomplete as they didn't fully satisfy or pay the debt that was required for man's redemption, just as Hebrews 10.4 tells us. Hebrews 10.4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Some might think, "Well, well, 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 then why did God establish that if it didn't take it away? Why did he put that in the Old Testament so he could make the point? So he could make the point. Yes, it was a substitutionary sacrifice to a degree, but the moment you walked away from it, it wasn't lasting. You had to keep going back and re-offering it. And God wanted to show us how futile that was because the truth was under the old covenant, if you made your sacrifice, but then you walked out and committed sin and get back again, guess what you were under? You were under the penalty of your sin. And how many of us, after making a sacrifice like that, wouldn't walk out the doors and within you know, minutes have a wrong thought, a wrong attitude, make a wrong comment, do some sinful thing. And the point is, we'd still be under our sin. We couldn't get away from it. So there had to be something more. It was pointing us. Remember, Paul says that the old covenant was there. The law was given to point us to the redemptive work that Christ himself would one day do for us. Because you see, in the end, even though these animals, they weren't sufficient, Jesus' sacrifice was. Jesus' sacrifice was. That's why he came the first time, to be that sacrifice, to pay the price required for us, to pay the price required for our sins. He became a lamb for us and went to the altar to be slaughtered as our sin sacrifice, just as lambs were slaughtered and offered there for the sins of the people. It's one of the reasons why I believe and don't get all bent out of shape over it. But it's one of the reasons that I think that John's account of the the Passion Week events is actually the most, not a question of more accurate, but it gives us the clearer picture of what was taking place. And all of the other writers of the Gospels were giving us other angles on things. But in John's Gospel, we can pretty well conclude that Jesus was actually sacrificed when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed on Thursday, not Friday. See, I believe Jesus was, was crucified on Thursday. I do. It was a year of a double Sabbath that year. And that's, if you understand that and you start reading the other accounts, you can start to figure out how that could be. But I believe Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law. He came in. I believe that on that Palm Sunday when he rode into the city, you know, that he came in at the same hour that the, uh, the lambs were being brought in to be examined. Because remember, the lambs were being brought in four days in advance to be examined for any flaw or blemish. And guess what? Here comes Jesus riding on the back of a colt you know, into the city and, and people will say, well, they came, all the crowds there came out to see Jesus. I would argue maybe just maybe the crowds were out there because of the lambs coming in and the procession and Jesus came in on the back end of it. I can't attest to that a hundred percent, but I have a sense in the scriptures that he fulfilled everything to the T in that regard. But he came to do these things. And what had happened with Jesus over that four days, just like the lambs, he was being examined for any flaw or blemish. And what does it tell us over and over and over and over? I find no fault in this man. He was the perfect sacrifice. And that's why he came. But as Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 tell us, unlike the lambs that were being offered, his was that complete and lasting sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 11 says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Wow. Wow. Once for all. Now I want you to think about this this morning in regard to your lives. And and please understand what I'm saying to you. I don't trivialize sinful behaviors. And you know that it's not God's desire. We want to worship him and we want to worship him, you know, in righteousness. And and he commands us to be holy as he's holy. He's given us the capacity to do that through his spirit, through the work of redemption on the cross. It's it's all been, it's there for, for the taking for us. It's been imputed to us. But listen to me very carefully. That doesn't mean that you and I will not commit sin. It doesn't mean that. You know, I'd like to tell you that I'm going to walk out the doors today. I'm going to have a great time at the picnic, be thinking about Jesus. And they get in my car and some fuddy-duddy is going to be in front of me going too slow or hitting the brakes when he shouldn't. And I'm going to get a wrong thought. It's my weakness, the highways. That's why my wife's going to take away my license one day, right? That and the fact that I'm going to be too senile to drive, but one of the two. But it'll be a blessing, not a curse, you see? But the point is we're going to walk out and, and things are going to happen in our lives, and I want you to know this, because oftentimes when these things happen, you know, oftentimes when these sinful things happen, we begin to feel like somehow we have to, to do something for the Lord. Somehow he can't, he can't receive us anymore for it. Look, I wouldn't argue that our sin, when we continue to walk in an habitual pattern, doesn't break to some degree the, the intimacy that we experience with him. It doesn't break our fellowship with him. He doesn't withdraw his spirit from us, but the scriptures tell us that we can quench his spirit. that we can can quench his spirit. And and, and in that, there's a break in intimacy that we experience with him when we are walking righteously with him, you see? But, But at the same time, I want you also to know that his sacrifice on the cross, if you placed your faith in him, that sin has already been paid for. He knew. It's already been paid for. He's not asking you to do penance. He's asking you to get back up to trust in him for what he's done, and now to look to him for the empowerment so that you don't repeat it, you see? But you don't have to stop. Your relationship with the Lord hasn't changed. He loves you just as much as he did before you committed that. Yeah, he wants better for you. Like a parent does. I love my kids. I love them to death. And you know what? I'm going to reverse it this morning because I got both my daughters sitting here this morning. Instead of putting it on them, I'll put it the other way. When their dad wasn't everything he should have been, they never stopped loving me. They never stopped loving me. Oh, they might have been mad at me. They might have looked at me and, and wondered why I would do that. what I did, but they would never stop loving me. And that's how Jesus is with us. He hasn't stopped loving you because you have already placed your faith in him. You've received the love that he gave to you when he hung on that cross and it poured it out. And your faith in him is is your expression of worship of him. And, and, And he says, you know what? He's paid the price for your sin once for all. And he's obtained for you eternal redemption. Amen? Second, the song honors the workers of redemption. It honors the workers of redemption. For you have redeemed us. For you. Have redeemed us. It's not workers. I should have said worker of redemption. Right? It's one person. Jesus is our redeemer. No one else has done this for us. No one else could do this for us. That's why John was crying. Because nobody else could do this for us. No, not, not Buddha. Not Muhammad. Not Krishna. Not Dalai Lama. Not the Pope. Not even you by the good things that you do. Could redeem yourself. We can't do it. No one but Jesus has redeemed us. Third. Song honors the destination of redemption. The destination of redemption. For you have redeemed us to God. You've redeemed us to God. This is where our redemption leads, you see. It leads us back to God, back into relationship with God Himself. Man lost that relationship in the garden through sin when we sold away the, the, the rights to everything. When we gave that away, Jesus came. He came and he did what was necessary so that relationship could be restored once again. You might remember at the end of the account of Genesis that God says, you know what? They had to leave the garden. They couldn't be in there anymore, which is a break of fellowship, wasn't it? It was symbolic of the break because remember in the garden, it tells us that he, they walked with him in the cool the day. I cannot begin to imagine. I mean, I, I, we say we walk with the Lord today and we know his presence. We do. But can you imagine in the way that Adam and Eve knew it? Just imagine that. Now, now, granted, we have something going on with us that we don't want to minimize either, and that's the presence of the Spirit in our lives. But there is still coming a day. The Spirit is simply the deposit. He's just the down payment for something greater that's coming. And what's coming is our walking with God again, being able to freely walk with him, being able to freely fellowship with him, being able to freely come into the, to the, to the Holy of Holies where only the priest could go. But remember on the day that Jesus was crucified, remember what happened to the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everywhere else. It was ripped in two from top to bottom. I always tell you guys this, but I want you to understand it was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top. So nobody could claim some two, a bunch of guys got together and pulled it apart because no matter how you pulled it apart, you could never rip it from top to bottom. And that thing was high. It had to be the work of God himself. He tore it because it was symbolic. Tell us that you and I now have access through Christ. We have access to God himself through Christ. We come back into his presence. You see. And God had that plan already from the very beginning. He had it in place. He had that plan. It was even hinted at already in the garden shortly after Adam and Eve fell in sin because Genesis 3.21 tells us God make tunics of skin and clothe them. You know what that required to make tunics of skin to cover them? Remember Adam and Eve, what did they go for right away to cover their nakedness? They went for, yeah, vegetation, right? And God says, that ain't going to cover you. That ain't going to work. So God says, you know what? Here and he hands them the tunics of skin. What, what had to happen for those tunics to be provided? Sacrifice had to be made, animals had to die. Now, I don't know all everything about the garden and what it was like, but I have this sense that they kind of walked with the animals too. And these were like their buddies. This is like me on Facebook watching the lion thing, saying, I'm waiting for that day when I can play with a lion, you know? Cool.